0: Hey, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 this morning, is where we're going to be in God's Word. As we uh, continue, began again last week our series working through the book of Acts, a book written by Luke, the same man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, to Theophilus to share about what Jesus continues to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through. God's church, and particularly the apostles, soon after Jesus was taken up and ascended into heaven. And we come this morning to Acts chapter 4, and I'll read verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 4. Follow along in your own Bibles, so I hope you have. If you don't have one, it'll be on the screen, but you want to put, if you have a Bible, you want to be in Acts chapter 4, because we'll be in a number of places there this morning. Hear God's word pick it up in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Pick it up in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the reading of God's holy inerrant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God stand forever. Amen. Well, as we have been working through chapters 1 through 3 of Acts, both in the fall and then beginning again last week, things have been going pretty well for the church Um, As you would describe it early on, other than Jesus leaving, they got the good news that the Holy Spirit was going to come, and that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, and great preaching happens, a great, you could say, a revival. 3,000 men become believers in Acts chapter 2, and the church grows in great favor. The church is in unity and peace with one another as they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to praying and to breaking bread daily in each other's homes. Things are going really great for the church until now, and what we will find over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be spending our, our time here probably pretty much from now for most of the spring will be spent in Acts chapters four through eight. And what you will find is you and I will take it actually instead of going necessarily in order uh, of the text. I'm going to take it a little bit in, in the sections of some of the themes that are going on in Acts chapter four through eight. Because one particular, two particular things come up in these chapters. As the church is growing, it grows but does so in the face of two things. One, external pressures, in particular persecution. And we're actually going to spend the next three weeks looking at how the church endured and dealt with and continued to grow and how the gospel advanced in the face of external persecution coming down upon the church. And then we're going to look at some of the internal struggles of the church. If you were to read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, you would think that this is the most perfect church ever. Everything is great and everything is hunky-dory. But not only is there a time in which the external pressures come on the church, but we also find that the indwelling sin, the fact that now the church is a bunch of sinners who come together to serve Jesus, that there begins to be some problems. And there's 2 we'll spend two weeks particularly looking at the problems that it endure, that the church endures internally within it. So that's where we're going over the next couple months and looking at Acts chapter 4 through 8. But we come this morning right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 4 and our first look at how the church responds and what it does in the face of persecution. And the wonderful thing that is seen in all of Acts chapter 4 through 8 is this wonderful truth that no matter what occurs internally or externally to the church, the gospel advances. Acts chapter 4 verse 4 here it is, right in the midst of this, Luke takes a break from communicating about how these, the, the, the leaders of the Jerusalem people, the Jews, come and they arrest Peter and the disciples. and it says, though that in the midst of this persecution, what happens in verse four? In response to their preaching, many of those who heard believed, and added to that number was 5,000 men, men, just men. Most people have most commentators look at this and they would say they assume that most likely what happened here is about 15,000 people during this time right at the beginning as persecution was beginning for the church 15,000 people were added to the church in Jerusalem on this day. The church advances, the gospel and advances. Why does it advance despite the persecution? Well, one very simple answer is this. Because even with the persecution the disciples in the early church consistently and faithfully proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. They continued to teach and to preach, no matter the opposition. I'm just going to walk through a couple of texts just here in chapter four and four and five. In Acts four one, they were speaking about the gospel. Acts chapter four two it says they were teaching. Acts four eight Peter preaches to the Sanhedrin, as we're going to look at this morning. Acts fourteen four verses nineteen and twenty. Peter says you told us to stop preaching and you threatened us we cannot stop preaching he says acts 4:31 it says the whole church spoke the word of god with boldness acts chapter 5 20 and 21 that even after they've been arrested again it says that an angel takes them out of prison and what do they go do they go right back to preaching and teaching in the temple and then the whole section here of acts chapter 4 and 5 ends in verse 42 with this and every day in the temple and from house to house They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The reason why, even in the midst of persecution, that the gospel advances is because the gospel was not silenced, even with that persecution. They would not stop preaching and teaching. And so this morning, as we look first at this preaching and teaching of the gospel, I want to look at some of the nature of how they preached and teached. In such a way, what it was it about the way they preached and they, they taught that they, they continued to bring about gospel advancement and church growth, even in the face of persecution? So, the gospel advances in the face of persecution. I'm going to give you three reasons. When, first, when you preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel. The gospel advances in the face of persecution when you preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel. Look at Verse 8. So Peter and the disciples, they've been arrested by the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Jerusalem, and they're brought before a trial and they're questioned. And it says that right as before Peter is going to answer, what happens? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, and he goes on to proclaim and preach the gospel, that the gospel advances when the Holy Spirit of God is in that gospel. Now, what does it mean? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the one of the million-dollar questions of the Book of Acts, and one of the great debates. It's one of the difference between being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And are we always filled with the Holy Spirit? And are we? Do we get many baptisms? I don't want to get into too much of the debates amongst as the intramural debates amongst Christians on that this morning. But I, here is just generally what I would say: is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If you love Jesus. And you are saved and you are regenerated. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit. That is, a permanent, that is a permanent presence in your life. A permanent identity. But for every Christian, there are times and there are seasons where you are filled with the Spirit. And you should always be longing to be filled with the Spirit more and more. When the book of Acts says that the disciples or others were filled with the Spirit, if you look carefully, it doesn't mean that just before they were filled with the Spirit, they were non-believers. It doesn't mean that just before Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit that he was, a, he was not a Christian. No, this is a man who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and now it says he's been filled for a particular task. When Jesus talked about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, in John 16, he says this, The Spirit will take of mine and manifest it to you. He will take the things I have said and the things I have done, and will make them real to you. He will take the things you know in your head, and he will make them real to the rest of your being. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. J.I. Packer, who wrote a book called "Keeping Step with the Spirit," says the ministry of the Spirit is what he called spotlight ministry. He describes it and illustrates it this way. Imagine you're walking in a dark city and through a dark alley and you can hardly see in front of you. But you come around a corner and suddenly what's standing before you is a gorgeous building that has bright, enormous spotlights that are shining upon it. And you're filled with awe and wonder at the beauty of this building. And he said the role of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is that you're filled with awe at Jesus Because the role of the Holy Spirit, when he fills you, is to make you face and see the beauty of who Jesus is. Too often Christians talk about, well, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pay too much attention to that. You know you're filled with the Holy Spirit when you're paying attention to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the floodlight. When you come around the corner and you see that beautiful building, you aren't going, well, aren't those just wonderful floodlights? That's not what you're doing. You're talking about and thinking about and awed by the beautiful building upon which those lights are shining. And that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to shine the light on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you don't say, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't go, I've got the Holy Ghost. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. No, what you say is, my Jesus is awesome. That's what you say when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit as a Christian, you you have have a, a more real, a greater experience than you had the minute before of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that the minute before you weren't a believer. Just in the same way, if you're married, you can be married for 30 years, right? You're married for 30 years. You're you're married that whole time. But then you enter into a physical embrace with your spouse, a moment of great intimacy. It's not that you weren't married 30 minutes before. It's that you've now experienced the intimacy of that relationship in a deeper and fuller and more intimate way. It's the same way when the Holy Spirit fills you. It draws you into a deeper, more intimate, more awesome experience of God's love for you. It's a heightening experience. And so Holy Spirit-filled gospel means this. It means it is proclaimed by someone who has experienced the realness and the awe of who Jesus is. That's what it means. That means if you're going to preach a gospel that advances in the world, even in the face of persecution, we have to be a people who know Jesus like that who are in awe-inspired, who are amazed by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And this is the reality for the disciples and the reality we see in Acts. Acts, in verses 13 and 14, after Peter has proclaimed the gospel in the face of the leadership of the Sanhedrin, they say this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and what does it say? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's your gospel. When you proclaim the gospel, do people smell Jesus? Because if they don't, it is not a Holy Spirit-filled gospel. In Acts 6, verse 15, we see Stephen, who is essentially, Stephen is going to be the case study of all that is good about the church in Acts 4 through 8. Of all the things that they do right in the face of persecution is going to be Stephen. And Stephen, it says this, even as they were, as he preaches the gospel in the face of great persecution and they're threatening to kill him, and indeed they do kill him, what do they say about how he looked? They said that the expression of, of Stephen as he preached was he had the face of an angel. He had one who had been in the presence of God. He will sense Jesus and your love for him and your awe of him when you preach the gospel. But it doesn't just mean that as well. It goes on into this, this overflowing when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. When you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, when you ever, we see that this happens in Acts and in the New Testament, that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it is not just for you to have a personal experience of Jesus, but you're filled to overflowing. It always occurs right before we proclaim the gospel. Whenever it says of the Holy Spirit, like Peter in this, in this case in verse 8, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then what happens? He proclaims the gospel. He, we see this in n- numerous places. We see this in Acts chapter 2 in particular when Pentecost falls, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They proclaim the gospel. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is not for just an individual experience of Jesus. It is for the purpose and work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the world with great power, And so that's the other thing it means to preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel, is this. Is a Holy Spirit-filled gospel means it is a gospel that points to Jesus, that you are so awe-inspired, so filled with his beauty and all that he is, that you cannot but help turn around and tell the people around you about how great Jesus is. That's a Holy Spirit-filled gospel. That's how Peter responds to the questions with the bold proclamation. When people God's people have been spil- filled by the Spirit, they preach to power, even in the face of persecution. And you know, historically, you know what happens when this, when this happens in the life of the church? Two things happen. First is this. When Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit and they proclaim the gospel to power, as Peter did, two things happen. First, Christians die. And second, the church grows. Christians die and the church grows. The world thinks that it can stop spiritual movements by threats and by physical force, by imprisonment and death, but it cannot. The rulers of Acts chapter 4 is the first, and for the first, it's the first time, and it'll be for the, it's gone on every day and for thousands upon thousands of years now that the physical government rulers of this world have sought to stamp out the gospel through physical means, and it has never worked. It has never worked. Justin Martyr said this during the great one of the great um, persecutions of the early church. He said, "The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That wherever the church is persecuted, it grows. It grows." You know, Martin Luther, he experienced the same thing in the midst of the Reformation when he began to preach and teach about the radical grace of the gospel, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. The righteousness that counts in heaven is not our good works or our religious righteousness, but Christ's righteousness alone that saves us. When Luther preached that biblical truth in the early 1500s, he endured great persecution, and he got in trouble with the religious hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. And they threatened him from far away Rome. And Pope Leo X sent him a message saying, Listen, if you don't stop this, all of your supporters are going to desert you because we're going to become and we're going to put you to death and we're going to, we're going to jail you. The envoy said to him, When they all desert, desert you, when all your supporters and all your friends leave you, where will you be then? And here's what Luther's response was. He says, Then as now, I'll be in the hands of God. I'll be in the hands of God. Beloved, when God's abounding grace when his Holy Spirit comes to his people in power, only then are we able to proclaim the gospel with boldness, even in the face of fear and persecution. You want to preach the gospel when people are going to hate you? you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you got to come to see Jesus in all of his beauty. So that's the first thing. The gospel advances in the face Of persecution, the church grows in the face of persecution. When you preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel, the second you also the gospel grows and advances when you preach an exclusive gospel. An exclusive gospel. The question comes, Peter: On what authority are you preaching and teaching? It's interesting; (laughs) they don't question why, how he healed the man or why they healed the man, because it's pretty hard to question whether they healed that guy when the cripple is standing there, as we see in chapters 4 and chapters 5. Peter, but Peter says, listen, my answer to your question of in what name or by what power did we heal this man, and he says the same thing he said in chapter 3. We healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ. Now listen, when you're on trial, this is true... Almost, for almost every kind of trial situation you're in. When I went before our denominational, the theological board to kind of be examined for whether I had the, the theological chops to be a pastor, one of the rules is say as little as possible. Because if you start saying things that they don't like, they're like sharks and blood is in the water and they're gonna come after you. So when you're on trial, whether you're at a church court or a governmental court, as you say as little as possible. And Peter could have just said, we did this in the name of Jesus. But that's not what he says, is it? He goes further. He pokes the beast. He says, we did this in the name of Jesus, which is, take him out to saying, we did this in the name of the Messiah. And not only that, but you killed the Messiah. He pokes the shark. He cuts himself and lets, him bleed, lets himself bleed right in front of them. This doesn't appear to be a wise move, but why does Peter do this? Why does Peter do this? Because he wants to preach and proclaim the gospel. Here it is. And this is this Isn't this amazing? This is Peter, who just a few short weeks before was such a coward that when a little serving girl came and asked him if he was a Galilean and had been hanging out with Jesus, Peter wimpishly said, No, and ran. But here, what do we see? He's on trial, his own trial, where he's facing death, and yet he stands up and he speaks the gospel. And not only does he say, not only does he say that he's preached the gospel, but he says that Jesus is the only way. Pick up in verse 10. And here's how, how, what Peter says in his preaching. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. Well, now we've stepped in it, haven't we? Peter stepped in it, and he seemed to do it purposely, and I'm somewhat doing it purposely as well, if I'm going to preach this text faithfully. Peter is saying, listen very deliberately, he is saying, brothers and sisters, that there is one way to heaven, that there is only one way to be made right with God. The idea that there are many ways to heaven and many ways to have a relationship with God, Peter says, no way. You see, what he is proclaiming here is the exclusivity of the claims of Christianity. It is exclusive. The nature of the gospel that we preach is exclusive. And the exclusivity of the claims of Christianity have almost always been the thing that has gotten us into the most trouble. It's what would happen for Peter in this case. Look at the immediate context. In the case of Acts chapter 4, the gospel of salvation through Jesus alone is being preached to the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees... They don't believe in the resurrection. And Peter goes out of his way to say, Jesus is the one who was resurrected. You killed him and he rose from the dead. And, or even the concept of demons. They don't believe in the concept of demons or angels. And generally, they don't believe in a spiritual world. And, and so the Sadducees, they don't believe in kind of a life after death. And therefore, their theology determines that their worldview is one of deep pragmatism. Such that they serve the table of political and social power and stability. The Sadducees in that day, which are the ones who put Jesus or Peter on trial here, they hold the political and social and economic power within Israel at this time. They had cozied up to the Romans. They were people of wealth. And so what they wanted for them, success for them, and what they wanted most in this life was for things in Israel to stay stable. Because if the status quo they stayed the same, they stayed rich and they stayed powerful within Israel. And that is a problem because Peter is coming in, and saying that there is a king who you must serve. And he's raising, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are being raised up. And they're shouting, and they're singing, and they're praying, and they're following this Jesus fellow. And they don't like this. This messes with the status quo. And not only that, but they are, the Sadducees are the aristocracy. They're trying to defend Roman rule in the, in the area. They're okay with Roman rule. They're cool with it. And they don't want anything that's going to upset the Romans, now, the Romans were a, it was, Roman world was a very pluralistic world, which was this. The Romans, what they would generally do is they would go in and they would conquer an area. And what they would do is, as a part of embracing those, those peoples and bringing them into the Roman Empire, is they would embrace their gods. And they would say, We'll serve your gods, and we'll bring them within the pantheon of our gods, and we'll serve your gods. And, and this, especially when we're visiting you or hang out with your gods, and we'll worship in the way you want us to worship. But here's the one rule. The God above all other the gods that you have to worship. We're cool with you worshiping your, your, your peoples, your gods, but you have to say Caesar is Lord. You have to say Caesar is Lord. So this is the agreement, and this is how it goes well, and how the peace of Rome is able to, to, to pervade much of the known world at that time. Everybody, hey, we just, we're all going to believe whatever we're going to believe as long as we also bow to Caesar. That's what they're saying. And, but what, are the, what is Peter coming in and saying? Peter is saying is there's one Lord, and there's one Savior, and there's one way to be right with God. And guess what? It is not Caesar. And this, this stance by the church for the first 300 years of its existence in the early church, post after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, is what gets us in trouble time and time and time again. It gets us in trouble with the, Jews, the, Israel's, the Israel the leaders at this time. It gets Christians in trouble throughout the known Roman world because they will not bow the knee to Caesar. They will not embrace the pluralism of the day. Now, what kind of issues do we have today? Well, we have a similar issue. See, what is ultimate today? Then it was Caesar for the Roman peoples. For the, for the Sadducees, it was the status quo. What's ultimate today? Here's the default religion in America today. The default religion of America is a personalized, psychologized, and pragmatized religion. Here's what I mean by that. It is personalized. We say it's between me and God, and it's none of your business, what I believe. Don't try to convince, convince me of some other belief. Don't, you know, uh, to, to evangelize. And, you know, in, in most, most, many countries in the world where it's totally, quote-unquote, illegal to evangelize, this is the issue. You can be a Christian, but you just can't evangelize. That's not cool. So it's personalized. It's psychologized, which means this, that our views of God or our views of what is is right and wrong and what is truth is simply based on what benefits me. What helps me feel better about my life? What gives me peace? What gives me comfort? It's psychologized. What gives me an internal sense of things are okay? What gives me a better life? And third is pragmatized. It's whatever works for me. Do you need helping a moral person? Just find some ism, some worldview, some religion that helps you be a more moral person, whatever it is that gets your life back on track, that helps you cope with life's difficulties. You see, what is ultimate today because of this worldview and this, this essentially this functional religion with America, is what is ultimate is the individual, what works for me individually. And the worldview that we have taken up that seems to best serve the individual best is pluralism. In order to serve what helps me best and yet live in a society, we must embrace pluralism, which essentially just says, you believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe, and we'll all just kind of leave each other alone. And that's how it's going to work. But Christians, and so Christians are increasingly told that we need to get with the times, that it's pluralistic now, that we shouldn't be making universal truth claims, that we shouldn't say that Jesus is the only way, that we should say that Jesus is, is, is hes one of the options. Jesus is hes a good idea, along with a lot of other good ideas out there. And people greatly object to the exclusivity and to the universal truth claims that we proclaim in the gospel. For example, people say that the differences between Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity, they say, okay, there's differences, but they're only superficial. And they really all believe in the same God. Tim Keller addresses this in his very well-known and New York Times bestselling book, The Reason for God, in the very first chapter of the book, and he, he starts it out this way by quoting from a young woman, 24-year-old young woman named Blair who lives in Manhattan. She said this, How could there just be one true faith? It is arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equal, equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Did you hear that? Did you hear the pragmatism? You hear this? It's personalized. So we all just, you know, it's equal, they're all the same. But let me just say this, this can't be the case. We cannot say that all religions are the same, that they all serve the same God. First, because the different religions claim mutually exclusive truths about God. In other words, what one religion says is mutually exclusive from what another religion says. Tim Keller, again, gives the account, in in the same book, gives the account of being on a panel a religious panel in New York City with a uh, imam, uh, a Muslim imam, and a Jewish rabbi, and he was the Protestant Christian on the panel. And they, what, what the the crowd was stunned by the fact that these three leaders, the place of agreement they all had was that they had differences. He went on it said this: If Christians are right about Jesus being God, they agreed that the Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather merely a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line was we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. It just simply is logically does not make sense to say that all the religions are saying we all serve the same God. There are mutually exclusive truth claims. All right, so that's one reason why this can't be right. But also it's this the second is the insistence The insistence in the doctrine that, that doctrine doesn't matter it's, is itself a doctrine and reveals a presuppositional view of God himself. Did you get that? This is, this, this is a claim that doctrine doesn't matter, that these various exclusive claims, because the answer to, okay, these different religions are, are okay, they, they have some differences, but the answer to that is it doesn't matter what differences are. But don't you understand that that statement is a doctrinal statement, And it's a statement that it presupposes something about God. And here's what it presupposes. It might be true that all religions are equally valid, first, if there's no God, And thus, everybody's version of God is merely just a projection of what they want God to be. Or second, there is a God, but he's so impersonal and doesn't care about this world at all that he doesn't care about how you worship him and how you live your life. That's the only ways, it's only on those two qualifications can all religions be equally valid. But don't you see that to say that all truth claims about God are simply up to your personal choice is built upon a presupposition and a premise that was something you already believe about God. You're saying, if you're saying that all religions are the same and it doesn't matter what people, how they believe about God and what, how they live and serve Him and how they get their, find their way to God... If you're saying that there is no God that exists, then that's okay. Or if you're saying that, listen, he's so impersonal that it doesn't matter how we serve him. You're already saying something about God. You're making a theological statement. And so what people say as Christians, you can't make exclusive claims about, about God. And they say, Christians, stop that. Well, don't you understand and don't you see that by, simply by saying that, that those people are making exclusive claims doctrinally about God as well. In let me say it this way. If you come to a Christian and you say, you shouldn't believe you have that you have the one true religion. You should believe all religions are ways to God. All religions are equally valid and all religions can be helpful. What you're actually saying is, I have a particular view of God and you must adopt it, Christians. You must adopt my view and abandon your view. Did you follow all that? In other words, there is a claim to exclusivity here. Christians, you cannot claim to believe in the God that you claim to believe in and hold to the same things that I believe in. There's exclusivity going on. All right, so that's your apologetic moment for today. If you want to read more and far more coherently, go pick up Reason for God by Tim Keller. But then let me just say this. Since we like pragmatism in America, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. What churches are growing in the world and what churches are not? It was believed at one point during the 20th century that because of intellectual and technological development, that religion would go away. That Christianity would fade back, but that is not, what's, is not what has happened at all. Instead, Christianity has exploded. Even the midst you know, the 20th century, there were more people slaughtered for their belief in Jesus than all the rest of the centuries combined. And yet, despite that, in the 20th century, Christianity exploded in the world stage. Now, you might say, it receded in America. Yeah, because we got too wealthy and we got too consumeristic and the church lost its saltiness. But in the rest of the world where people are being persecuted and they're impoverished, guess what? The church is growing like a weed and the gospel is going forth in great ways. Did you know, we're Presbyterians. Did you know, our, our Presbyterian history is Scotland. That's where, we, where you know, the heartbed of Presbyterian history is from. Did you know that there are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are Presbyterians in Scotland and America combined? There are six times as many Anglicans in Nigeria than in all the United States of America. Korea has gone from 1% Christian to 40% Christian in the last 100 years. You know, there's a church in Korea that has 700,000 members. largest church in the world. The Korean church. The church is growing. Here's the thing, though. In America, in particular, we also see that the growth is different than you might think. In the last hundred years, it is the mainline churches that have seeded the truth claims of Christianity that have shrunk, while it is the evangelical, fundamentalist, Bible-believing, and gospel-preaching Christianity that has grown. In January of this year, there was a Washington Post article by a guy named David Haskell who was writing about five years of research that he had done on churches and church growth, in particular in connection to their, how it played out with their theological views. And here's what they found. He said this, 20 years ago, He refers to a book that was written by a guy named John Shelby Spong, who was a U.S. bishop in the Episcopalian Church. And his book was entitled, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And he was presented amongst the mainline churches, that is the historical churches in America, as an antidote to the crisis of decline in mainline churches. So 20 years ago, people in churches were going, hey, our numbers are shrinking, what do we do? And the solution was this that Spong, who was a theological liberal, said congregations would grow if they abandoned the literal interpretation of the Bible and transformed with the changing times. In other words, that if gay marriage is cool, we accept gay marriage. That we don't push against the mores, the cultural values of the day. That if people don't want to believe in miracles, we don't believe in miracles. That we get rid of those things that are difficult. Spong's general thesis is popular with many mainline Protestants including those in the United Methodist, Evangelical Lutheran, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and Episcopal churches. This book has been the required reading in liberal seminaries and theological institutions. But, the article goes on and says this, But the liberal turn in mainline churches doesn't appear to have solved their problem of decline. In our five-year study, our research shows definitively that the conservative Protestant theology, with its more literal view of the Bible, is not just a is not just that the churches who are connected to that grow, but it is the significant predictor of church growth, while liberal theology leads to decline. In other words, the churches in America, you hear about the church dying in America, you know the churches that are dying in America? The churches that have stopped believing in Jesus, that have stopped believing in the Bible. Meanwhile, the churches that are growing in America are the churches that say, Jesus is the only way, and we believe the Bible. Those churches are growing. Because God's word cannot be stopped. The conservative, Bible-believing, fundamentalist Christianity is not shrinking, but it's increasing. And in true, it's only, here it's only a fraction of the growth here in America. It's growing explosively around the world. So, So, we want to preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel. But we also see that we must preach an exclusive gospel. If we're going to remain salty, if we're going to remain different... We must preach an exclusive gospel. Let me, let me just give this as a warning. Listen, I heard this week, some of you have read Shauna Nyquist's book. She's a, we're a fairly well-known um, author. Uh, she's read decent books. She's written decent books. Her husband's about to come out with a book that talks about moving from fundamentalism to spiritual faith. Don't read it. And I don't understand why the church keeps going, Jen Hadamaker, don't read her either. Don't read, you know, these people are not helping the conversation because they are actually, it's, you know, you know what stupid is, is to do the same thing over and over again and thinking you're going to get a different outcome. What Jenna Hatmaker is is doing and what Shona Nyquist is doing, what Aaron Nyquist is doing and what Brian McLaren of the Emergent Church and what so many other people of of the church who are leaving the evangelical church and saying, listen, we have to embrace, we have to embrace all these theologies that are, that are contrary to the Bible is they're simply taking the approach of the liberal mainline churches that they've been taking for 100 years, and it has always failed. It has always failed. So, what do we do? How do we remain attractive, though? You see, it's interesting. The early church found this amazing balance, this amazing place where they were both hated and yet attractive. Now, how in the world do you manage that? They were both hated and they were attracted. They were both purpose persecuted and greatly popular. It's clear the persecution. Do you see the popularity? It says in Acts 2.47, they grew in favor amongst the people. At the end of chapter 4, it says a large, a large crowd gathers and the Sanhedrin releases the disciples. Why? Because the crowd is insisting on them releasing them. The crowd, Sanhedrin is going, we can't, we can't punish these people because the crowd will kill us if we do this. And we even see it today here as well, Acts 4.4. The church is growing enormously, even in the face of persecution. The early church is both attractive and they are hated. Now, this is important to recognize because it would be easy, and this is the, what people are saying, and what has always been the, the statement of the seeker-friendly church in the, in the mainline churches has been this. We ought to be an attractive church. And therefore, we shouldn't say anything that is not politically correct, and there are a number of teachings and doctrines that we should therefore avoid, and we most certainly should not tell anyone that they are a sinner, and absolutely we must not do church discipline. We're going to find that the church is going to grow even in the face of church discipline in a couple weeks. But we shouldn't do these things. We have churches that are attractive, but they're not persecuted. That's That's what the Church of America is. We have so culturally given in that we have, we have no attractiveness. We're, we're attractive because we smell nice, but we aren't kind. We smell nice, but we don't smell like Jesus. On the other hand, we have churches that are not attractive. They're just hated. You're familiar with these churches. Perhaps this is the church that you grew up in. They're hated and they love it. But they're hated because they're arrogant, rude, self-righteous jerks, narrow in all the wrong places. They're unwelcoming and they're unwarm. Many of you have been to these churches this is what fundamentalist Christianity has come to be known by, culturally. It is easy to be hated. You know, it's really easy to be hated. It's easy to be it's easy to be attractive in the way most of the churches in America do it. You just kind of follow the best practices. You can find find the magazines and you can do that. That's easy. It's interesting. I've had there's been a number of um, Facebook articles I've seen. A, even people in our church post in which they talk about how millennials have abandoned the church, but the churches that they're coming back to. What are those churches? It's interesting, almost none of these articles, none of them, and it's great, people are posting them and saying, I'm glad I'm part of KCP and this is a great thing. But you know, it's interesting, almost none of these articles actually say anything about what the Bible believes that the church should be about. It's all about kowtowing to what millennials want. So we're simply just going to make the mistake that we made with every generation for the last 100 years. We simply kowtow. We, no, we, listen, if we're doing anything to reach people, I want it to be because we're being a Jesus church. that are going to God's word and finding our practices from there. It's easy to be attracted in just simply the worldly way. It's also easy to be hated. You know, if I want to be hated, you know what I could do? If I wanted to get the culture really angry at us, you know what I'd do this morning? I would turn to Timothy, where it says that women should receive instruction in the church and quietness and submission. I'll teach that women aren't supposed to have authority in the church, which, by the way, the Bible teaches, and I'll do it blatantly and in your face. That's an easy way to be hated. I'll teach on homosexuality and what the Bible says. I'll teach on abortion. I'll preach on Calvinism. And I'll be hated. And you'll be hated. And this church will be hated. I'm not going to avoid those topics. But I'm not going to preach them simply to be hated. There's no glory in being hated for the sake of being hated. There's no glory in being rude. The church of Jesus Christ, though, will find people who hate them because they tell the truth. But also attractive because we love better than anybody else. Because we love better than anybody else. If we preach a Holy Spirit-filled and exclusive gospel, that would get us hated. But we being hated and persecuted is not, does not lead to gospel advancement. and will not lead to a lasting church growth. But here's what will. It will be preaching in the Holy Spirit-exclusive gospel that is joined together with a group of people who live out the gospel faithfully. Who actually believe what they say and live it out rightly in their lives. And that's the third way to preach. And our final point this morning. As you, if you want to you advance the gospel in the face of persecution, you've got to preach a living gospel. A living gospel. If everybody's making exclusive truth claims, the question is how can we then live together? How is it, how is it that we can live in peace if we have exclusive truth claims as Christians? How can that happen? How can we live in America, which is almost by nature, a pluralistic society, and, be, and be, caref- be, be gracious and live at peace and be civil in our discussions with other people? How can we do that? By actually believing what we preach. And by living it out. You have to have truth claims that, if rightly applied, lead you to actually being civil and lead you to actually seeking peace, and lead you to actually caring for the brokenhearted, and lead you to actually seeking justice, not just for people who are Christians, but for people of all religions. This is getting Russell Moore in deep trouble within the Southern Baptist Convention, because he's saying, we must actually defend the rights of Muslims in this country, because otherwise, guess what's going to happen? They're going to go after them, and just like they did in Nazi Nazi Germany, they're eventually going to come after us. To seek justice for all peoples. The solution to the problem, the solution to the problem, it's interesting, is we, want to pre- we should preach an exclusive gospel, but then we must live it out faithfully. Do you see what happens? The solution to the problem is seeing how Peter responds. Peter said, listen, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. Really? you're going to examine us based on this. Peter says if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness to a cripple, he had healed a lame man. He's asked how he had healed him. He says it's by the name of Jesus that we healed him. And what we see in the early church is what joins with their preaching and their exclusive Holy Spirit-filled preaching is a church that heals people, that cares for the brokenhearted, that is, and it's interesting here, this is a, a classic text on civil disobedience. This in chapter five. When Peter says we must preach the gospel, we must obey God rather than man. But you may notice here that Peter continues to be respectful of the authority, even while he defies it. Too many Christians, we shake our fists at the government authority and those around us, and we do it in a disrespectful way. Listen, we should be the most respectful people, even when people are arresting us. That we love and care for people. We also see in general, in, at the end of chapter 4, we see that the church is the most generous people. That they care for the orphan and the widow. What do we need? We need a people whose belief, whose truth they believe, makes them into humble servants to the people around them, whether those people believe in Jesus or not, whether those people agree with them or not. That makes the gospel attractive in a real way. The liberal mainline churches have sought to grow the church through accommodation to the cultural pressures, to get rid of truth claims. But the answer here's the answer. The answer is not to become less Christian. It's to become more Christian. It's to actually let the claims, to actually live out the claims of the gospel. You know, the gospel is so egalitarian. It's, you know, one of the reasons why the Sadducees and the teachers of the law are so angry here is because they realize that the disciples are uneducated people, and yet they're preaching with what? Authority. They're going, you haven't, you haven't gotten the credentials to preach like this. You can't speak in the temple and speak with authority. You haven't gone to the right schools. But you know what? In the gospel, you know what? Because the gospel says that every single one of us is a sinner— and deeply, need, deeply deserve God's wrath. And second, that the only way we're saved is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, these are the most, two most offensive things about Christianity. But if we believe those things, guess what? We will not hold, we will not hold our place in a place of superiority at all. Because we know that we're, we're sinners just like everybody else. And that we're saved by the grace of God alone just like everybody else. This is how the early church lives, and this is how we ought to live. And so, brothers and sisters, if we want to be a church, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of continued cultural pressure to give up what we believe, we've got to preach a Holy Spirit-filled gospel that is bold. You have got to preach an exclusive gospel that keeps Jesus at the center and in Him as the only way. And we've got to preach a living gospel that ex- displays the truths of the gospel in our lives. Let me close with this. From a Gospel Coalition article that that was uh, written in January this year, which talked about the church's growth in Iran. It 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 starts this way. It says, One of the craziest stories in the world today, and it's a simple story that can be summarized in two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing church in the world. And it's not only growing there, but it's influencing other regions of the Muslim world. The Iranian Revolution in 1975 or 79 established a hardline Islamic regime, and over the next two decades Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out, evangelism was outlawed, Bibles in Persian Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared that the Iranian church would soon die away, but the exact opposite has happened. In fact, last year, the mission research organization Operation World named Iran as the fastest-growing evangelical church in the world. And according to the same organization, the second-fastest-growing church in the world is in Afghanistan. And Afghans are being reached in part by Iranians since their languages are so similar. How did this happen? The article gives two factors. Two factors have contributed to this openness to the gospel. First is this is the violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime in Iran and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. But second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. The testimonies of Iranian men and women who have come to Christ are powerful, and I'm going to give you three here this morning. First is Qumran. He was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons One day, a friend gave him a New Testament. After reading the New Testament for five consecutive days, Qumran gave his life to Jesus. When his family and friends saw his transformed life over the ensuing months, many of them also came to faith. A church now meets in Qumran's house. There's Riza, who is a mullah, a Muslim scholar who hoped to become an ayatollah, which is a Shiite leader. One day, while studying at an Islamic seminary in Iran, he found a New Testament that had been boldly left in a library. Out of curiosity, he picked it up and was deeply shaken. And over time of reading that New Testament, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, Reza is a trained church planner serving in the Iranian region. And last, Fatima's earliest memories were of being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. Upon returning home, she was raped again until she decided to leave home. On the streets, though, in the most impoverished places of Iran, she'd heard the crawl of the gospel preached and she trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man. As they were receiving training in evangelism and church planting, Fatima felt called to go back home and witness to her family. Her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord. The first church Fatima and her husband planted was in her childhood home. And the article ends this way. We're living in a time when many Christians are suffering for their faith, particularly in Islamic contexts. People often react by preaching fear and hatred of the Muslim world. Yet the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. And this is our call. And the story God is writing for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and remain confident in our sovereign Lord and the power of his gospel. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we, um, I, I think, Lord, we must, we must start a prayer in response to this with confession. We must confess that as a church, even a church that, at least, that we hold it as a badge of honor, that we try to preach the gospel faithfully and do verse by verse and exposition and do good exegesis of God's word, and we hold to the fundamentals of the faith. But, Lord, our functional theology comes out, and we must confess that we look far more like Peter before the cross than Peter after the cross. That we are a whimpering, sniveling, cowardly, insecure church. And sometimes that whimpering comes out as just simply avoidance of the issues. Sometimes, Lord, it comes out by being like an insecure dog trapped in a corner, and we just lash out at everybody who disagrees with us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be so gracious to drive the gospel home. That Lord, we would actually believe what we preach, and that by believing what we preach, we would live it out with great faithfulness so that even those who persecute us, even those who hate us, even those who despise us, would feel the love of Jesus Christ emanating from us. So, Lord, may we not shirk the call to be exclusive and to be bold with the gospel. And, Lord, may we not shirk the call to live out the gospel faithfully, to lay down our lives as Jesus laid down his life for his enemies and then forgave them on the cross in which they slaughtered him. Lord, we look to Jesus as our example and as our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.